Hello and welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast, brought to you by the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 20, Comedies and Cockfighting, Entertainment in Georgian Edinburgh. Well, hello. Good hello. morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Thomas. And I'm Kate. And we're back here for another episode of the Gladstones Land podcast. So, Kate, how are you today? I'm all right. I'm bored. Um, well, yes. Um, but uh, beyond that, absolutely fine. Enjoying the sunshine. Good. Yeah, we've had some good weather down here in Cambridgeshire as well. And uh, um, I, I, I have been managing to do a little bit more reading than I had hoped, but not a vast amount. What, what about you? Yes, I've been doing some, but um, I've been watching a lot of bad TV instead, if I'm entirely honest. Mm. Historical TV, perhaps? Oh, no. Bad crime procedurals. It's my thing. <laughs> so what are we going to be talking about today? Uh, we're going to be talking about um, things that people did for fun in Georgian Edinburgh um, and a little bit of the wider picture as well, but particularly um what people are doing to to entertain themselves in the 18th century. So public entertainment and leisure pursuits and things like that. Yes, absolutely. Very good. I think the the, the backdrop to it, I guess, is that a lot of the things that we were talking about in the previous series, some of the, uh, the, the, the civil wars and upheavals and, uh, um, and revolution going on in Scotland during the 17th century as that started to tail off in the uh, towards the end of of the of the 17th century Scotland was a little more settled uh, and then the other side and probably the more important side of the the backdrop is that as we moved into the 18th century people had a lot more money didn't they uh, the you were saying the middle classes had more um, more money and more free time and that sort of thing to devote to leisure pursuits yes there's a there's a rise in in sort of the the time that people have available to do these things um, and um, it becomes doing these entertainments outside your home is not only enjoyable but it also com- starts to be a way in in some of the examples we're going to talk about of um, demonstrating that you're part of society it's probably not dissimilar to some of the things that we talked about with consumer um, consumer products, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when we did the episode on tea, we talked about some of these uh, expensive consumer products becoming much more available. Uh, tea and coffee and the things that go with them, fine china and spices and so on. With those things coming in and then becoming more widely available they would be adopted by the middle classes as a way to show that you're part of society and leisure and entertainments are a little bit like that. Very much so. I mean, we're going to talk about a whole span today, but um, there are definitely a certain section of these entertainments that are very much in that category. Uh, It's about being part of of something and and showing that you're part of something. Okay, great. So um, we'll get into a lot of the examples in more depth um, but before we begin that, could you just give us a rundown of um, 
the various things that the various kinds of entertainment that we're going to talk about today. Of course, yeah. So I thought we would start with theatre because that's something that's very close to my heart, and that's one that really spans the, the social spectrum. Um, the other one that that really goes across the social spectrum are pleasure gardens, um, and I'll explain a little bit about, more about what those are. And, and I'm sure people will have heard of some of the examples in London, but perhaps not in Edinburgh. Um, then we've got um, things like sport um, and particularly cockfighting is a really interesting example and we know that that was very big in Edinburgh during the 18th century um, and then I suppose things to visit um, so maybe exhibitions there's a few of those we know about in Edinburgh and then of course you've got music and dancing so we've got the assembly rooms we've mentioned that before very briefly um, and um, concerts and um, sort of musical entertainments as well. Mm. Well that all sounds great I'm looking forward to it. So uh, you wanted to start with theatre. <laughs> so Why not? Let's talk about theatre. Um, what Could you just um, before we get into Georgian theatre, would you be able to say at all what um, what sort of theatre had there been in Scotland before this period? So actually not a lot. Um, so the theatre scene in London, um, we can think about it in the, the sort of the 16th and 17th century there is a lot going on and yes there's some points where they they clamp down on it and then there's a, and it springs back and and but actually the thir- first theatre in Edinburgh is the first proper theatre in Edinburgh is not until 1767 and that is because the Kirk is really opposed to the idea of theatre um, and there are temporary theatres before that there are street performances there are there are things going on um, but in terms of a permanent theatre in Edinburgh it's really late um, when you look at the the London theatre scene. Why? I think I know what you're going to say, but why did the Kirk disapprove of theatre so much? Morality. It was seen as immoral. And and one of the reasons that it has that reputation is because it was very much about mixed classes. Um, You get everybody in the same space. It had a real reputation for being rowdy, for being bawdy, and for being a place where prostitution happened. Hmm. Uh, and so there was very little theatre uh, going on in Scotland before that. I, am I right that I think um, during the Restoration, when the future James the Seventh was governor of Scotland, he and his court had a little bit of theatre going on? So there are some things going on in the courts. Um, you do get um, sort of court masks and things like that. Um, you also do get touring groups of, of actors going around Scotland um, it, it's just this idea of sort of permanency um, and actually saying this is a theatre and we do theatre. So you said 1760 uh, thereabouts the, yep. opened the first theatre so tell us about that. Uh, so it was on the east end of Princess Street I think I touched on it very briefly when we talked about the Georgian house in that episode um, and it would not be like going to the theatre today. Um, it, it doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Um, but it would have had boxes near the stage in which the the, the wealthy would have sat, um, paid much more for their tickets. And then you would have had crowded galleries. They would have been absolutely packed. It was long bench seating. Um, people would come and go as the performance happened. Um, an evening at the theatre would be much longer than today. It would uh, be a whole series. You would have your play at the core of it, but there would be a series of performances around it. And um, people would drink, they would eat, people would be selling 
calling booze in the gallery. Um, people would shout at the stage. Um, a lot of theatres, there was a lot of theatre rioting in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, the Drury Lane Theatre in London was damaged or destroyed by rioting six times during the 18th century. Uh, so it, it wasn't the polite experience we think of it today. And actually, Edinburgh had its own theatre riot as well. In 1794, um, they put on a, a play called uh, King Charles I. And that sparked some uh, serious discussion about monarchy. Uh, and it led to a number of clashes between sort of radicals and revolutionaries and Tories and constitutionalists. Um, and it became a thing that you went to see this play and you got in a fight. Uh, and people started coming armed. They started trying to eject people from the theatre. And over several days, it escalated and ended up with a massive street brawl. Gosh, uh, I suppose it, well, yeah, it's quite different from the theatre-going experience today. It's so different. <laughs> um, so other than this example, King Charles I, what sort of plays did people go to see? What was available? So there's a whole range. Um Both comedies and tragedies were popular. Um, We know that Sarah Siddons, um, who was known as a tragic actress, um, came to uh, Edinburgh in 1784 um, and was very well thought of. Um, She actually apparently had had an interesting experience because um, it was common practice to applaud throughout productions uh, in London. But in uh, Scotland, the audience would only applaud if they thought you were doing a good job. Um, so she performed the first part of her play in stony silence and it was only when she delivered this this incredibly moving speech that uh, the audience uh, started to applaud and let her know that she was doing okay Um, and she said it was a very she actually recorded that it was a very different experience performing in Edinburgh that's fascinating Um, so you've got quite a range and you've got a lot of music around that as well are there any plays that uh, are there any Scottish plays written at that time that would still be performed today? Are there any that you know about? Oh, off the top of my head, I don't, but there will be. And I know there are playbills. There's a number of surviving playbills in the British Library collection from the the Edinburgh Playhouse. Mm. Um, So it would be possible to go and have a look at exactly what's being performed. And you say that theatre was called the Edinburgh Playhouse, but it's not quite where Uh, the playhouse is. So exactly, the Theatre Royal um, Playhouse is... um, Sorry, that was a generalisation. Yeah, it was the, the Edinburgh Theatre Royal, whereas the Playhouse is now over the other side of town. Right. Um, and just briefly, you said that the play was the core of the night at the theatre, but there were other things that you saw as well. So so what would what would the, the average running order be? So I've, I actually... Uh, so there's a lovely surviving Georgian theatre in Richmond. If anybody gets the chance, I thoroughly recommend it. It's called called the Georgian Theatre. Um, and they have all of their surviving galleries. They have their boxes. They have a lot of the decoration, the original uh, box that people sat in to take money on the way in. It's all there. They even have some original scenery, some original stage cloths. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have the section... I get really excited about this. Sorry. Gone off on a tangent. I'll come back. Um, they also have the bit beneath the stage where all the machinery was. Um, and the the idea that special effects are something new in theatre is absolute nonsense. Um, the Georgians had some really impressive special effects. They had candles. Um, they used um, different coloured um, lights. Um, they um, and they had winch uh, winching machinery, so they could have used trapdoors. They could fly things. Um, so there's all sorts of really fun stuff going on. Um, but the Georgian Theatre Royal have a whole load of playbills. 
um, that survive. So you get these setups where um, they will have little comedy sketches, they'll have music, so they'll often have um, individual people singing or performing duets. Um, so it's a lot of sort of small, um, almost a little bit cabaret style uh, mm-hmm. around that main play. Hmm. Fascinating. And you said it would take all night. You know, you would turn so, up. At... Yeah, it, it wasn't a two hour I go to the theatre, I leave. Um, it was it, it spanned the whole evening. People would show up late. So they might just come up for the main play or they might show up early and really start drinking. Um, it was a very sort of mixed experience and you could drop in and out of it. Mm, that sounds very good. And so next you wanted to talk about pleasure gardens. Is yes, that right? Now, I think... this is always something that I have I've heard about, but I get the idea that what I am, uh, what comes into my head as a, a, a Georgian pleasure garden is probably not quite right. I mean, the, the term to me conjures up almost a sort of um, uh, a quite debauched uh, outdoor den of iniquity. I, I, to be honest, by the end of the 18th century, you're not far off. Um, and that's really what did for them, because that was the reputation they got. Um, but in their early stages, that's not what they were. Uh, they were, I, I think I sort of put these next, because in much the same way as theatres, they were a very mixed class experience, which, again, uh, was not the norm with other forms of entertainment outside the home. Uh, So the first pleasure gardens um, in the UK we see in London um, and people might have heard of either Vauxhall or Ranelagh um, and they um, come in sort of mid 18th century Um, and when they're conceived and when they're built they are basically just big enjoyable parks Um, they've got uh, wide walks through them they've got wooded areas they start putting in interesting pavilions the Chinese pavilion I think it was at Ranelagh um, became a a real spectacle Um, and then they started having evening entertainment as well so um, illuminations fireworks concerts they really were a mix of all sorts of things you could go there during the day and take tea um, and have food or you could go there in the evening and drink and eat and see a concert and wander around what are illuminations fancy lights um so there's an incredible description of one of the london ones i'm sorry i don't remember which one off the top of my head um from um one of the sort of the big evening parties they had and i'll explain a little bit more about those in a moment where it, it basically talks about everything being lit up there are lights all along the um the 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 foods, uh, the places that uh, the restaurants, basically the food service places along the, the river that winds, winds through it. Um, and it's, it's just all beautifully lit up like a fairy land. Mm. Um, and then increasingly, these pleasure gardens in terms of evening entertainment start having sort of outdoor balls at them. And this is where the masquerades come in. Um, and this is where it gets a little bit dodgy um, is they start hosting these um, these, these sort of um, big, sprawling, exciting masquerade balls. And some of them become fancy dress, uh, which is where my interest in them really appears. Uh, and um, because people are masked, because they're in fancy dress, it becomes a space in which all sorts of naughty things start to happen. And there's, of course, there's dark wooded areas that you can disappear into. And they start getting this reputation for um, adultery, for sexual liaisons. um, And that is really where their reputation starts to decline. um, And that comes into conflict with sort of new 19th century ideas of morality. um, Mm. And they really sort of peter out into the 19th century. 
And you said that you had an Edinburgh example of a pleasure garden. So where was it? So it was Abbey Hill. And what's what's so interesting about Edinburgh, and I had a real trouble finding this, so there may have been others, but this is the one that I found, um, is that um, in terms of Edinburgh terminology, people ref, uh, refer to the private gardens of Newtown as pleasure grounds and also the private areas of people's estates as pleasure grounds. And that's not the same thing at all. That's just a, a wording that seems to crop up in Edinburgh. Um, these are public pleasure grounds that you pay to go into so during the day you pay a small fee and you go in um, and then at the evening you you would pay more for these big these big events uh, but there is one in abbey hill um, it is called cumley garden uh, and it was where james balloon titler or tatler i'm not quite sure how you say his surname um in 1784 launched the first balloon flight he was the first man to go up in a balloon in the uk mm. and people forget about him um is uh, he the one who um, he he launched from Edinburgh and then he landed somewhere in Fife, and the uh, the citizens of um, uh, London Links or wherever it was that he landed thought that it was an angel or something like that. <laughs> that that sounds appropriate. I, I don't know for sure, but that sounds like the sort of thing. He was a really interesting um, chap. He um, very intelligent. Um, there has been a suggestion in retrospect that he might have been on the autism spectrum um, because he never really, uh, he clearly had a huge amount of intellect. He had, he worked very fast. He wrote a lot of entries in the Encyclopedia Britannica um, and, but that he never really settled to anything and he really struggled with social connections. Mm. Um, but absolutely fascinating guy. There's maybe an episode on that in the future. And just for those listeners who aren't so familiar with, Edinburgh's geography. Whereabouts is Abbey Hill? In... So it's an area that expands from about Holyrood um, to up to London Road, Easter Road, and um, Meadowbank Shopping Centre. It's that oh, whole area there. Yeah, right there. Which is is still there's still a park there right now. That's where you have the the there's a big duck pond, and that sort of thing. There Be, behind Holyrood Palace, you mean? So there's that part of Holyrood. Um, so my understanding is that it wasn't part of Holyrood, which is up behind that. That's part of the, the Holyrood estate. It was further across. Um, and it was it was considered to be quite, in terms of gardening, um, the gentleman who planted it up and was responsible for it was quite a renowned Scottish botanist. Um, and it was also, again, it was really mixed in classes. I found a reference in Boswell's diaries to going there. Um, and he attended during the day. They took tea. They participated in some of the country dances. Um, and he went with um, Captain Douglas, Lady Mary, the Duke of Queensbury. So it was qu- clearly he was going with a high end group of people. Um, but it was also cheap enough to have the working classes in there too. Mm. And I suppose from a, with my National Trust volunteer hat on here for a moment, you're talking about gardens. There's a, a National Trust angle there too, because as well as historic houses, uh, the National Trust also uh, in Scotland has a lot of, of public gardens, doesn't Do it? Indeed. And, and so there is a, definitely a uh, horticultural angle to look at there. Um, yes. And I suppose these would have been places where the new ideas of garden design and horticulture and new and interesting plants and that sort of thing were on display 
there's i mean and edinburgh is a great example because there's all the the stuff with them moving the botanic gardens as well so yes that is also another episode i think there when you say moving the botanic gardens where had they been before so my understanding is that they moved from basically down near the norlock um in that area and then they were moved up to their current location but i don't know a huge amount about it and i'm not going to pretend to do do you think would would the as people are probably familiar with the edinburgh botanical gardens as being something that you you well you actually you don't pay to go in do you it's free but you, you go wander into, you pay to go into the greenhouses yeah you wander around they have these wide boulevards and there are interesting things dotted around in there and they occasionally have events is is that sort of what we're talking about yeah big areas places yes you can wander around um there would be more i would imagine in terms of follies and buildings and um but again that concept of having little cafes there's a couple of cafes dotted around that's exactly the sort of thing you would um, you, you mm. would stumble across so i i suppose that's a a sort of equivalent um but um not quite scale. as um, not quite as raunchy and as not quite a, as raunchy uh, later in the century as a proper pleasure garden oh that's fat i'm really interested in that because i've always heard talk of pleasure gardens but n- never quite worked out what they were um so moving on from pleasure gardens you then you wanted to talk about <laughs> uh curiosities or exhibitions Yes. Can you explain what you mean by that? Uh, so one of the things that you really get in the 18th century, and this continues into the 19th century, are touring, it's a terrible phrase now, but freak shows and things like that. And you get um, you get a really popularity of those, but also sort of slightly weird exhibits crop up. Um, and you also get a passion for visiting things like, this definitely happened in London, we know that, um, visits to bedlam the um the the sort of the lunatic asylum as it was known um and that actually has public visits up until 1770 so there is this really sort of morbid curiosity and fascination um with um things that are different but also with with ideas in science and um because they don't have the ready access to to the internet to media to in the way we do it was very visual. People wanted to visit things. Um, we did have um, a uh, an institution equivalent to Bedlam. It was known as Edinburgh's Bedlam um, here, which was based around Darien House, roughly where the Bedlam Theatre is now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't. Think, fu- I, I I think uh, this is um, this may this may um, not be a hundred percent true, but this is what we were always told. When I was a student at um, performing at Bedlam Theatre, we were told that it it took that name because of the uh, the lunatic asylum, which was just across the road. So, it, yeah, this this has been a huge point of contention in Gladstone's land um, because Darien House was there somewhere. Um, and Darien House is so named not because it has anything to do with the Darien scheme, as it turns out, that was a, a sort of a romantic notion put on it in the 19th century. But there's been a lot of confusion about exactly where Darien House was, where Bedlam was, where sort of around that area. Um, I can't find anything about public visiting, but since it was such a thing in other cities, it's quite possible mm-hmm. that was happening here as well. Uh, and term- other than that, there would have been um, sort of touring freak shows and very people much bringing so. animals and that sort of thing animals to have a look at. and people as well 
Um, so there was a prominent case in the 18th century of sort of a wild girl that they found in France that they toured about. Um, into the 19th century, you get a lot of um, sort of indigenous populations from other countries being brought in and displayed because they look different. Uh, mm. And um, that is very popular sort of 18th, 19th century. Um, and obviously to our eyes, it's abs- absolutely horrific that they're creating these hu- human zoos. But that was considered a sort of a fascination in the 18th century. And so the the travelling human zoo would have set up in the middle of some sort of public square and yep, you would charged have... charged entry. Um, a little bit like a circus tours now. Blimey. Um, so you've got things like that going on and they're definitely coming through Edinburgh. Um, I did find a couple of examples of sort of permanent exhibitions. These are nowhere near as, as controversial, um, but still interesting. So up on uh, Carlton Hill, we have the Popular Observatory. Um, which was basically a camera obscura which moved down to castle hill just next to gladstone's land and is still there because it was Mm. preserved by geddes in the 19th century Um, but my absolute favorite i love that this was considered entertainment was next door there was an exhibition of statuary it was literally just 30 statues that people paid to go and look at Um, I guess a little bit like Madame Two Swords today. Um, They were historical, traditional characters. There were some life-size equestrian statues. I'm just reminded of the scene in um, Pride and Prejudice where they go round Darcy's house and the the, the big selling point is his gallery of statues. Yep, that's exactly. And people were interested in it. And again, it's because they don't have this this ready access to, to depictions of things. Um, so these are really fascinating to them. Just speaking of permanent exhibitions, what about the beginnings of uh, museums and art galleries? Because um, so, obviously now Edinburgh has a very um, prominent tradition of, of these these big uh, institutional museums and sort so of great galleries. And a number of those, particularly the um the National Gallery is housed in what I've always assumed is a Georgian building. So I, my understanding is that this comes out of two traditions. Um, one is the sort of the academy tradition of art, uh, so that you get um, academies where people are taught art, and then they also have um, annual exhibitions of current painters and and the aim is to get your your painting into the academy into the salon um, and have it exhibited and that then sets you off on your artistic career or shows that you're developing in your artistic career so I think some of the collecting um, and the display traditions come out of that and then I think the other thing they come out of is a real interest in historicism that starts developing towards the end of the 18th century. Um, and Sorry, obviously what, is this, his, what is historicism? Historicism, just an interest, a romantic interest in the past. Um, right, and, okay. I mean, Walter Scott is the prime example of somebody that does this. He wrote all these romantic novels um, that looked backwards in Scottish history. Um, and out of that, people start being interested in um, clothing that people wore. They start being interested in historic monuments. Um, and it's as part of that sort of romantic movement that people start to conserve older buildings. Um, so I assume that collection um, sort of comes out of those two things. And um, do you know, just to wind up this point on galleries and so on, do you know when the current uh Uh, National Gallery of Scotland was first exhibited in its current uh, building on the mound. Now, my understanding is it's late Regency. So you're talking sort of around uh, 1820-ish when that first came into practice. Okay, super. 
And I suppose a nice way to move on from the sort of uh, public galleries and um, museums and things like that would be to then talk a little bit about um, some other sorts of public events like dancing and um, concerts and things of that nature. When we talked about a day in a life of um, Mrs. Lamont, the lady living at the Georgian house, you said that one of the things she might have done was go to the assembly rooms to attend a dance. Uh, so how how would that work and how did that uh, come about in, in, in Edinburgh? So I went and looked this up because I didn't know a huge amount about it. Um, so it looks like there was a number of assembly rooms in Edinburgh at various points. Um, the two that were most prominent during the Georgian period um, are the assembly rooms, as we think of them, which are still there. They're on George Street. Um, they were opened in 1787 but prior to that um, I've also found reference to Dunn's assembly rooms and I can't work out where they are um, but there is quite a lot of information about what was going on there as well Um, and it seems that those two were there's an overlap so they're both functioning at the same time. Uh, They are definitely holding dances and balls the assembly rooms on George Street was funded by public subscription so you put money down and in return you got a certain number of tickets Mm. Um, and but there were all sorts of rules about what you could and couldn't do at the dances how many dances you could partake in um, how many tickets you got who you could give those tickets to um, so for instance um, but to give you a timeline of sort of what would happen in the evening uh, we know that at the George Street Assembly Rooms the doors would open about 7pm the dancing would begin at 8pm um, and then from 12 till 1 you had country dances um, and then the music stopped at 1am um, which was a little bit later than I imagined I don't I don't know why hmm. I suppose there's no um, they didn't really have to get up very early in the morning did they no <laughs> there is that uh, and, and certainly if you are a, a family of leisure then uh, yes there's perhaps less impetus to to need to get up the following day. One thing that we we forget about, I think, uh, in our modern day is that before electric lighting was invented, nobody did anything um, before dawn, right? Or at least nobody in in the cities would, you wouldn't attend a, uh, you wouldn't start work or whatever before dawn. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. it's obviously it's much harder to navigate um but there are instances i don't don't know so much about this in the 18th century in the 17th century we do know that some business is conducted very early in the morning but i assume that tends to be in the summer when it's lighter Hmm. um, because some of the taverns open at 5 a.m oh well that's Um, different that's a tavern for you to be able to conduct business in it while also having a beer at that time in the morning um and so you were talking about dances um, mm-hmm. are, are, are these aren't really public dances because you had to have a ticket. You had to, yeah. You couldn't just show up on the door and rock it. You had to, you had to have a ticket, and you, those were pre-bought. Either they came through your subscription sc- uh, scheme, or there were other tickets made available. Um, and there were quite tight rules about who you could dance with, when you danced, which dances you danced. Um, and also, I looked at the rules for Dunn's assembly rooms. Um, and the reason we have these rules is that they're published each season in the Caledonian Mercury. So there's a, the, there's a whole load survive. These are from um, 1783. Uh, and it includes a rule that says no tea, coffee or other liquor 
or fruit to be brought into the ballroom. Which just, it sounds like today, isn't it? It's like no wine on the dance floor. Well, I suppose in a very practical sense, you would have had exactly the same problems as, as people would have today. You're slipping on dropping yeah, wine breaking glasses. glasses. Yeah, it just it just felt very, felt very relatable, that one. We are going to talk a little bit about, well, we, you know, we're going to do a whole episode on music mm-hmm. um, yes. in the next couple of sessions. But just to, um, because we're talking about dances, would the assembly rooms and Dunn's assembly rooms and so on, would they have their own permanent uh, orchestra or would there have been travelling performers? How would that work? So they definitely, obviously it's live music, <laughs> Um my understanding is, but I may be wrong on this, is that they would probably have their own in-house um, orchestra. But um, we we also know that other people were playing there. Um, so we know that at Dunn's Assembly Rooms, they had regular Highland gatherings, which are basically bagpipe competitions um, <laughs> at, on an annual basis there. So people are, com- are definitely coming in to play music as well. Um, and um, we know that the Musical Society of Edinburgh, who don't run dances, they just run concerts, um, a lot of the musicians they're getting um, to come in are from elsewhere. Um, and that's part of their selling point, is that they, they're having high-profile musicians come in to play, mm. mostly foreign tunes. Um, yes, yeah, I suppose uh, this is probably something we'll talk about at greater length in the music episode, but to uh, there's there must be a sort of... Um, uh, a mix of what you would consider Scottish folk music and then more traditional uh, Georgian classical music being played and danced. Very to. much so. Um, the Musical Society of Edinburgh existed between what 1728 and about 1801, um, and we know a little bit about the sort of stuff that they're playing. And a lot of it is is choral works by Handel. We've got early stuff of Beethoven, a lot of Italian composers, but they're also playing Scottish tunes, traditional Scottish mm-hmm. tunes. Uh, well, uh, more on music later. Yes, We've got a really interesting, a really interesting guest um, coming up to talk a little bit about music. So we'll save all that for next time. The last thing that we were going to talk about today, as promised in our evocative <laughs> title, uh, was cockfighting. So, Kate, uh, this again is something that I imagine listeners might have a sense of of what it is but um could you tell us a little bit more about cockfighting and other blood sports and why they were so prominent to be included in this list of uh, uh of public entertainment so i picked cockfighting because we can track quite a lot of it in edinburgh but it obviously wasn't the only one um this is a period before organized sports as we think of it in terms of big football matches or big rugby matches or anything like that but that doesn't mean that sport is not happening we know that there is definitely horse racing going on down at Leith um, certainly in the 17th and 18th centuries Um, and we know that there's other blood sports going on um, bull baiting um, badger baiting they're all things that are happening Um, but there's actually a surprising amount of information about cockfighting in Edinburgh. Um, so I sort of alighted on that one as an example to look at the wider picture. Um, and again, interestingly, you do get different cockpits that have different class makeups, but there is a variety of classes associated in cockfighting. Um, we know it's definitely happening from the 17th century onwards, because in 1704, the Edinburgh magistrates actually banned cockfighting in the streets. So they basically drive it into private, well, private um, sort of indoor spaces. 
Um, we know from an essay um, on the innocent and royal recreation and art of cocking um, from 1705 uh, that there was a cockpit on the links of Leith, um, which was well frequented. I have also found reference to the one there being one down on the grass market as well. Uh, interestingly, um, very big during the 18th century, but towards the end of the 18th century, again, with those changes we were talking about with the pleasure gardens, new ideas of morality, new ideas of animal welfare, it does begin to fall out of fashion. Mm. And it starts to be criticised more than it's praised. Um, and it's actually made illegal into the 19th century. That, however, does not mean that it has stopped. Um, and there are prosecutions well into the 19th century um, for cockfighting. And actually, those continue today. In 2009, uh, they broke up a clandestine cockfighting ring in Edinburgh um, and seized seven birds from a number of addresses. So cockfighting still happening in Edinburgh. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I guess when... Just to clarify this in my head, you, by cock fighting, we're talking about you would have two fighting cocks. Two, two um, fighting birds who are basically fighting set roosters, at each other. Set at yep. each other and people would gamble on the winner. They bet on which one would win. Um, right. And sometimes they would both still have to survive, but often it was, you know, involved the death of birds, the birds. Oh my gosh. Um, well, yeah, it was pretty It was pretty brutal. But um, uh, as you say, there's still... There's still still happening today um yeah. but in the same way not. that dog fighting is still happening today yeah it's pretty mm. grim um and i but i think it's it's interesting what you say about team sports um because that when when, when people talk about sports today what they immediately conjure up in their head is is the the, the big team games you know football and rugby <sighs> and so on but those are all um those would have been played i suppose informally yes um, but they weren't codified that's the big change is that none of the rules are set down until the 19th century so Mm. you do get games of football happening throughout this period but they're not they have like local rules and rural rules and there's no definitive number of people who can play on a team there's no they they are just adapted locally um and they tend to be you know there's 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 not the sort of no contact rules that we have in some of them now there's um so they, they did happen, but they, mm. they just weren't controlled and refereed and in, in any of the ways that we think of. And none of that comes until the 19th century. Uh, I'd love to do a, a podcast on the history of football um, in Edinburgh. I think that would be fascinating. But oh, that's also absolutely something for another time. Um, well, I mean, this has been a fascinating uh, uh, <laughs> run round all the different kinds of public entertainment uh, available to the burgers of Edinburgh. I, in, I enjoyed uh, researching it, if I'm honest. Was, was there any, are, there, are there any other points you want to bring up before we move on to the next item? I, d- I don't think so. I think that's exhausted. <laughs> it exhausted my public entertainment's hole that I, I got down in the last couple oh, of days. Good. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I suppose, just to reflect on it more generally, um, we tend to sometimes think of the past as having been quite different. And there are some things that we would, when we're talking about um, early modern Scotland, that seem very alien to us. You know, that some of people's social attitudes and their religious attitudes and civil war, the way that politics worked, some a lot of that is very different. But it's really nice 
to also look at um, history of entertainment and to see that in in many respects people still like to have a good time and go out and do interesting things, attend plays, go to the pleasure garden, see but your friends. So many, so many links between the way that we do things today and obviously there's there's things in here that would very much be condemned today but there's there's so many parallels you can draw so now we're moving on to our next section which is our our new segment for this new series the women of scotland uh last week we talked about queen matilda uh, of Scotland, wife of King Henry I of England. Uh, this week we're talking about somebody else and Kate, that is... That is Louisa Lumsden. So we are back to the 19th century, um, early okay. 20th century. Um, you can see Thomas is in my areas of interest with these, can't you? Um, and I'm sorry, yeah, you've got more of me talking. It's been a lot of me talking this episode. Uh, but let me tell you about Louisa Lumsden. Um, she was born in Aberdeen in 1840 um, and she really was a pioneer of female education in so many ways. Um, she was one of the Girton Five which are the first women to attend university at Cambridge. Um, they were they're also sometimes called the Girton Pioneers. Is that because they attended Girton College? Yes so yes. Girton was set up this was before Cambridge allowed women to um, be part of the university in any way whatsoever. They were like, women don't want anything to do with them. Um, so a couple of very strong-minded women, um, Emily Davis um, was sort of the, the main mover and shaker, set up Girton College um, with the idea that um, women would attend the lectures um, and the tutoring that they were allowed to attend. Um, and they weren't officially allowed to take any of the final exams, but they sort of managed it so that they could take them, but they wouldn't actually be awarded the degrees. In fact, Oxford and Cambridge were enormously late in actually awarding those degrees to the people who'd earned them. Um, so the thing is, these women are going to university and doing all the same things as men, learning all the same things, scoring just as well in the final exams and are not being awarded the degrees they deserved. I think Oxford was one of the last in like the 19, 1920s, incredibly late. Um, and they so she's one of the first women to go and do that um and there's five of them start um the the first women take the final exam in 1873 and she's one of the three women that do that and passes um she then tutors at girton for a year between um 17, uh, 1873 and 74 um, and then she goes off to teach in the fledgling women's public school system um so she teaches at cheltenham ladies college which is one of the the early big girls public schools uh, and can I just be absolutely clear here because we may uh, oh is this going to be the public private school debate no, no. we we, <laughs> uh, we do have some American and Australian listeners um, when you say public schools you mean hired private school so right. oh gosh this is so confusing and I will try and cover this as quickly as possible um, but Public school has been used to mean so many different things. In the context that I am using it, I am meaning um, it in the context of boys' public schools at this period, which is essentially a high-end private school, which is um, organised with um, governors. Um, and so your the classic example of an English public school would be Eton. Eton, or Harrow, Harrow, those those sort of schools. Um, okay. And what you get in the mid to late 
19th century is a number of fledgling I mean what is essentially private girls schools but they they are called public girls schools um, and they are trying to prove so they are providing an academic education there have been girls schools before this but they are very um, very focused on accomplishments they're very focused on um, music and dancing and, and languages um, and needlework they're not at all focused on on maths and science and um, and these early schools are determined to provide an education that is equivalent to men to prove that girls can be academic because there's huge Mm -hmm. questions about that um, and can also give them the education they need to enter professions so there is a lot of fight for women to become doctors at this period to go to university um, and so they are setting up girls to be in a position to do that right and so uh, louisa uh, goes from tutoring at girton college cambridge to to... teaching at one of these schools right um, and one of the very famous ones cheltenham ladies college Uh, She then goes off, comes back to Scotland and sets up her own school. Um, And it's St. Leonard's, it's in St. Andrews, and she sets up that in 1877. Um, And it is the first... So I've said that these these schools are trying to show that they're equivalent to boys' schools. What she actually does is she basically just models St. Leonard's entirely on a boys' public school. She teaches maths, she teaches classics. Sport is a huge part of the curriculum. um, And... She, she really emphasises um, that they're completely equivalent in every way. Um, and to do that, to be able to have the girls playing sport, she actually introduces um, school uniform um, so that they are playing sport in something sensible. And it's the first example of girls wearing school uniform in the UK as well, which is where my interest in all of this comes from, obviously. Um, did, she, did she invent the gym slip? She did chance. not invent the gym slip. That is later. So she uses a, um, a design known as the Dio Lewis suit, um, which she then adapts. Um, and the, there is a theory that she had worn something similar in Belgium when she attended finishing school there um, and that she adapted that. So she uh, was founded and was teaching at St. Leonard's School in St. Andrews. And then mm-hmm. what? Well, she also introduced lacrosse to the UK um, mm. as, again, it was... So up until this point, a lot of the sport that's been playing in girls' school is quite sedate. Um, and again, she was, again, in modelling it on a boys' school, she was all about active sports and she introduces lacrosse um, and um, actually is the uh, the person that um, educated people who then took it to America and introduced it there. Um, so she's responsible really for spreading lacrosse quite a long way. And lacrosse is still considered to be one of the most popular girls' school sports in Certainly in public and private schools, um, less so in state schools. Um, But yeah, lacrosse is is still widely played within that system. Um, So she resigns in uh, 1882, hands over her headship to Frances Dove, who does great things there as well. Uh, And then she becomes the first warden of University Hall at St Andrews University. Um, So that was conceived as being um, the the equivalent, the Scottish Girton. It was the first women's hall at St Andrews. Um, It had a lot of kickback from students, both male and female, um, but she was the first warden there between 1895 and 1900. Uh, And Uni Hall still has, it's still there. It's still a university hall of residence. It's where I was a uh, warden in my year when I did my master's. Um, And then after that, you'd think 
think she'd achieved enough but no then she gets involved in the fight for suffrage uh, and she becomes the president of the Aberdeen Suffrage Association and she was um, a suffragist so she was non-militant but she was very very involved she gave a speech at Hyde Park in uh, 1913 um, and she really was very much a part of that suffrage the Scottish suffrage campaign um, and she was um, she's widely recognized for all the work she'd done both in education and uh, in suffrage through the 20s and 30s um, she was given honorary degrees um, and she was made a dame in 1925 mm. um, and she lived through until 1935 there you go good for her um, I, I, I suppose it probably goes without saying that most of the women who were involved in uh, early girls education and women's education at universities and so on most of those presumably were suffragists and involved with the fight for suffrage as well. Absolutely. Um, There's some really interesting correspondence um, in the early stages of both the education and the suffrage movement. Um, So I'm in love with Emily Davies. She was an absolute pioneer um, in terms of, she was a woman of letters and she was very, very canny um, in getting the right people to do the right things for her to make the right things happen. Um, she she got um, Millicent Garrett into suffrage, didn't she? She yes. So um, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, who was the first woman to qualify as a doctor, was also related. They they basically sat down and they're like, we're going to we're going to hit various points. Like, what we're going to do? And Elizabeth Garrett Anderson was like, I'll be a doctor. And Emily Davis is like, university education. And Millicent Fawcett was like, suffrage. Um, and off they went. Um, so yeah, there was quite a close connection between them. Um, but there's a lot of her letters survive um, and there's a whole series from suffrage meetings where she worries that um, women, because they're trying to protect, uh, present a very sort of feminine appearance to try and like dull the blow that they're campaigning for suffrage a little bit because people are saying, oh, you're not feminine if you want to vote. Um, and there's a series of her letters basically worrying that uh, some of the women that are showing up to these meetings are looking a bit strong-minded. Well, that... That is um, a, another really fascinating case study. I mean, as you say, we don't talk about them enough. That's why I think we wanted to introduce this section, the women of Scotland, because someone like that, uh, uh, who was such a prominent figure, you know, in introducing women's education at Cambridge and then founding one of the most um, prominent schools in Scotland and then uh, the University Hall at St Andrews and then involved in suffrage, that's an you know forget the fact that she's a woman that's an important figure in Scottish and British history full stop and yet as you say we don't really talk about these people enough so thank you very much for sharing with us the story of Louisa Lumsden Dame Louisa Lumsden Dame Louisa Lumsden yep All right, so we're at our final segment of today's podcast, and this is the What Are You Reading segment, uh, where we just talk about the the history books that we're reading at the moment um, and what they're about and what interests us about them. So over to you, Thomas. What are you reading? Well, uh, this is a book I have... um, I've just finished, uh, recently finished, actually, um, a, a book called The Silk Roads by Peter Frangipan. Uh, it is it it purports to be it's a, a a history of the world through looking at global trade and cultural exchange, um, but it's not it, it, it's trying to move the focus of world history from the Atlantic 
to the central uh, to Central Asia. Really, he says that he talks about the 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 Silk Road as we would think about it, the traditional trading lanes between the Middle East and China. Uh, he he calls it the spine of the world, uh, and he says he, he he makes a point. The, the the claim he makes is that all the great powers in world history, from Rome and Persia and China all the way through the British Empire to the Americans and the Soviet Union, have always been interested in controlling events in the spine of Asia, the uh, this center of the world, um, and. So it, it, it's it's a it's a book that is slightly scattered in the sense that he he races through history, you know, starting with ancient Persia and ending up with Osama bin Laden, uh, and you know, so, some of it is is very uh, very um, you know he'll hone in on a particular century and and do that in great detail and then fast forward for another bit you know so it's a little bit scattered in that sense but it has um it's it's cultural history really which is what i found very fascinating you know he wasn't that interested in who is the caliph of islam or the shah of iran at any particular moment it's more about what uh, what were people trading? Uh, what sort of people would you have met in the uh, in the bazaars of uh, of Baghdad? Uh, and uh, and it was and it really did the trick for me in showing the history of the world in a completely new light. You know, um, his the the point he makes, I think, is that uh, traditionally in the West we think about. Western Europe and the Atlantic and then North America as being the centers of the world. And his point is, it's really not, uh, though that is but one important place and, and that there are there are many other places that, uh, that have played important roles in world history and we should think about those too and give them weight and importance on their own terms. So I really enjoyed that book. Um, and if you are... Yeah, if you're interested in world history in general, um, but uh, want to to get a different perspective, I suppose, on on world history, then I would recommend this one, uh, The Silk Roads by Peter Frangipan. So that's me. Kate, what are you reading this week? So once again, I'm halfway through one. Uh, this is clearly like I, I've got in step with the, the podcast recordings. Uh, so this is Lucy Worsley, um, If Wall Walls Could Talk, An Intimate History of the Home. Uh, and it is really fascinating. It's basically a series of vignettes about things that relate to domestic life. Um, and it's really diverse. Uh, so there are sections on being ill, on... Um, closets how they developed on underwear on bathing on history of the bed um, lots of little like chapters single essays on specific topics um, really fascinating really fascinating introduction to those little areas and and they all relate back to to the home and living in some way um, the only thing I think my only criticism about it was because they are sort of such short glimpses necessarily you have to gloss over some of the wider picture that they fit into um but very interesting nonetheless hmm. and that's lucy worsley who is the the television presenter and uh 
curator at Historic Royal Palaces. Yes, yes, yes. yes. One, I'm not sure whether I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but another podcast that I have been listening to quite a lot lately and that I would recommend to anybody who uh, who likes this one is Lucy Worsley's podcast, The Historic Royal Palaces, um, where they do, um, I suppose, a similar sort of thing to what we try to do here, but obviously on a much grander scale. Um <laughs> Can't really uh, compete with that, can we? No, you sort of cultural uh, uh, history and history of objects, artifacts, uh, and in particular, at the moment, they're looking at the Tudors because it's a, last year it was apparently the 500th anniversary of the coronation of Henry VIII, and so um, I know that lots of people at the moment are, are really interested in the Tudors because of the last Hilary Mantel book. So if you are a Tudor fan and you haven't already heard of this, then then do check out. Uh, historic royal palaces podcast but sorry to jump on that bandwagon there kate what was was that book called lucy worsley if walls could talk an intimate history of the home well there you go that's uh, definitely one i'm going to try and have a look at you might notice a theme with a lot of my reading at the moment it's all, all connected to this because that's my my current area of interest so what do you mean, your current uh, so, interest? Um, I, I think I mentioned this when I was talking about a curious history of sex, um, is that we are putting together the research for a tour on the history of sex um, and sort of the history of the intimate history of Gladstone's land. Um, so a lot of the reading I'm doing relates to that at the moment. So you, you may notice a theme over the weeks. There you go. Well, um, that's almost... Well, not almost. That does bring us to the end of this <laughs> On that <week's>... note, Kate, it's <laughs> enough. <laughs> uh, 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 well, yes, I'm, um, I'm going to have to um, uh, um, work very hard not to stutter all my way through the episode on the history of sex, but uh, we'll see uh, how we get on. Um, we uh, yeah yeah I think that um, is just about all we've got time for today on the Gladstone's Land podcast. So um, I hope you've been enjoying some of these new episodes. Uh, if you if if you do, uh, then please do get in touch. As always, we would really love to hear from you, um, and you can get in touch with Gladstone's Land in some of the normal ways. Um, Kate, you were saying the email's not currently working but... uh, so the email may not be monitored um depends on furlough and um sort of what's going on in wider lockdown um stories uh, but it they will be picked up eventually even if they can't be picked up immediately um so you can get in touch on the email but you may not get a response immediately but you can also tweet uh, mm-hmm. gladstone's land uh, and you can as always find it on facebook and uh, and and so on and also if you want to get in touch with us directly about the show you can email me um which is thomas henry at hotmail.com and i will put that in the show notes kate is there anything else you need to say any no, announcements I, I think i've uh, i think i've uh, contributed quite enough today i think we've heard a lot of my voice uh, and that should be just about enough talking to keep you going uh, in isolation for the next two weeks. Yes, that, that may, may keep me sane for the next next week or two. <laughs> well then, um, Kate, it's been great to talk to you and uh, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Gladstone's Land podcast with me, Thomas Weir, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. 
It was produced by us with support from the National Trust for Scotland. We had no guest this week. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Gladstone's Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones hyphen land. Thank you all very much for listening and we'll see you next time.